Hi, my name's Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Susan Rice, who's considered a frontrunner for Joe Biden's vice president, is a multimillionaire investor in the fossil fuel industry, Las Vegas casinos, and much more. And according to many progressive commentators, as a national security advisor to President Obama, and before that, an undersecretary of state, someone who seems to have never considered a war she didn't want to wage. She's considered firmly aligned with the hawks of the Democratic Party, although it's been reported that she was at odds with Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel and took on, took on Obama's side during their disputes. Now joining us to assess what Susan Rice might mean as Biden's VP and perhaps someday president is Phyllis Bennis. She's director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Also joining us is Stephen Zunes. He's a professor of politics and coordinator of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of San Francisco. Thank you both for joining us. Good to be with you. So, Thank Phyllis, you. kick us off. Uh, what's sort of the your sort of the big picture take on on Rice, and what it would also tell us about Biden if that's his choice? You know, Paul, there's a theory running around, which I think is actually pretty accurate, that the reason that the very high visibility teams that were put together between Biden and the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, to come up with unity positions between essentially the left and the center of the Democratic Party, uh, that they had one on immigration, one on health care, one on the environment. And they were pretty impressive in terms of bringing in activists, bringing in progressives, as well as bringing in people from the Biden campaign. They didn't have one on foreign policy. And it was disturbing from a number of vantage points, but one of them was the sense that Biden believes that foreign policy, absent all evidence to the contrary, is actually his strong suit in the election. And because he's very experienced in foreign policy, which he is, he knows a lot of foreign leaders around the world, uh, that somehow he doesn't have to worry about his credentials, his bona fide credentials as a foreign policy leader. And the problem is, of course, that he is, in fact, an experienced foreign policy operative, and it's always been on the side of war, ranging from the Iraq war to a, a wide range of, of, of other positions. He's never been on the anti-war wing of the party. Susan Rice, even more than Biden in some ways, has emerged from the beginning of her sort of high visibility positions in the Democratic Party as very much a leader of the we should definitely go to war side of things. So with all the conversations that are out there about she's a she's a potential liability to to Biden because of Benghazi. Benghazi becomes this uh, this sort of watchword of being linked to Hillary Clinton, being linked to the crisis around Benghazi. While nobody talks about the fact that the real criminal aspect, in my view, of of her activities in the the U.S. and NATO war against Libya was not the crisis in Benghazi that ended up with the unfortunate death of four U.S. Uh, soldiers and contractors, but was the decision to go to war in the first place. It was a little triad of Hillary Clinton, Susan Rice, and Samantha Power, who persuaded Obama, when he was president, uh, to go to war in Libya 
rather reluctantly. And as we know, reluctance doesn't really matter when people are under the bombs. It doesn't matter whether you were excited to drop the bombs or reluctant to drop the bombs. When you choose to, to drop them, you become accountable for that. So I think that she is a warmonger who, as you said, has never seen a war that she didn't want to support. And it's just ironic that what she's being kind of called out for at the political level is this one side issue of the devastating attack on Libya that devastated the population, killed huge numbers of civilians, and left Libya in the state that it is in today, where there are competing governments, competing militias, a militarized society where no one is safe, huge problems for, for would-be migrants. Uh, it's just been a, it's been a nightmare. And the weapons that were turned loose in the context of the NATO-US uh, war in Libya have now spread throughout the Middle East, throughout North and Central Africa, and are destabilizing whole countries in the region. So the result of the war that Susan Rice pushed for uh, has been devastating. And so the notion that she is going to be pulled in as the vice president to another war-supporting president is a very depressing reality. Uh, Stephen, tell us something about her history. Well, she served as um, Assistant Secretary of State for Africa in the Clinton administration. She served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations during Obama's first term and then as his national security advisor uh, during his uh, uh, second term. Uh, in between, she was at the Brookings Institution in, in Washington, D.C., a, uh, a major centrist uh, think tank. Uh, and and uh, But uh, I want to underscore that her big legacy is her hawkishness. Um, and just for example, in the um, um, run-up to the Iraq war, uh, people like Phyllis and I were trying to get the word out that uh, these claims that Iraq was a threat and it accumulated these uh, massive amounts of uh, so-called weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you know, she sided with the Bush administration, insisting there was indeed an Iraqi th uh, saying that, 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 uh, um, that, uh, that, in her words, it's clear that Iraq poses a major threat. Uh, his weapons of mass destruction need to be dealt with forcibly, and that's the path we're on. And, and when Colin Powell gave his widely ridiculed uh, presentation at the uh, United Nations, uh, she um, rushed to uh, his... Uh, his defense, you know, uh, saying that he proved that Iraq has these weapons and is hiding them. And I don't think many informed people doubted that. I mean, that's, that's downright Orwellian. You know, people who <laughs> who blindly accepted Powell's transparently false claims are well informed, while the UN officials, arms control specialists, and others knowledgeable the reality of the situation were uh, presumably otherwise. But you try to play it both ways. I mean, there's, there's this article that's been widely circulated from the Chicago Tribune that says, no, Susan Rice did not support the Iraq war. And and, and indeed, it appears that I, I don't see a, a, a statement saying, I think we should invade Iraq. But, you know, when you under when you reinforce the main arguments for war and you undermine uh, many of the arguments against it, I, I'd say it's pretty clear uh, where you're coming from. And she's also been, I mean, Africa is supposed to be her, uh, her specialization, uh, but, uh, you know, there it's also very disturbing. Uh, when she was UN ambassador, she suppressed a UN report criticizing the government of Rwanda, a U.S. ally for supporting the um, 
uh, M23 rebels in eastern uh, Congo. Uh, they, they, they were led by this notorious warlord, wanted by the International Criminal Court. It wrecked havoc uh, in that part of the country. And, and she dismissed it saying, oh, it's eastern Congo. If it weren't for the M23, it would be some other armed group. <laughs> and when the uh, uh, Ethiopian dictator, Menelik Zanawi, uh, 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 died, uh, she delivered a eulogy calling him brilliant, a true friend of mine, uncommonly wise. Um, and, you know, this is, um, and, and this is at a time when I think more Americans than ever, especially Democrats, are, are, don't like this uh, idea of, uh, of backing allied dictatorships around the world. And, and she's uh, very much into this Cold War mentality uh, that no matter what a government's uh, human rights abuses or violations of international legal norms, if they're an ally, we should give them uh, their, our full support. Has uh, Biden has since said he was wrong voting in favor of the invasion of Iraq or the Iraq war. Uh, has she ever expressed any um, misgivings about the position she took? Not to my knowledge. How, how about you, Phyllis? Have you come across anything? No, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. I think most of the people who uh, later came to regret their position because it became so untenable as something they could defend mm-hmm. Um, didn't actually apologize, but took the position. I, I don't know that this was her position, but for many people who were in and around uh, the the uh, Democratic Party in, in later years after the Iraq war had begun and was going forward and had become such a disaster uh, to everyone, you know, it, many of us knew it was going to be a disaster ahead of time, but for everybody to be able to see it as a disaster, the position became, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have voted for it. It's this sense of, I didn't have any way to know that what they were saying wasn't true. And of course, that just begs the issue of all the people in the United States, peace activists, certainly, but not only, plenty of academics, political figures, others, uh, saw through the lies and were willing to come out and say this war would be a disaster and it would be based on lies, and certainly around the world. Uh, That was the the widespread uh, understanding. So this notion that people should apologize, didn't really take off, but it became a kind of meme, if you will, to say, if I knew then what I know now, I'm sorry I didn't know more. And it's like, well, you knew enough. If those of us who didn't have clearance to see, you know, the the kind of detailed information that people in Washington were seeing, and we figured it out, she should have been able to figure it out. Exactly. I mean, I, I, think, close, I think it's fair to say that close to 90% of uh, American MIDI scholars oppose the idea of invading Iraq. And I'd say pretty, pretty close to 80% of foreign service officers and uh, you know, professionals within the State Department familiar with specializing in the Middle East. And so, you know, people like us, you know, look at uh, folks like Biden and Rice, the way epidemiologists and climate scientists look at Trump and the Republicans. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, 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 there's, there's almost an anti-intellectualism there, that, that they, they were driven uh, by, uh, you know, by, uh, by ideology more than, uh, uh, more than the reality. Yeah, I've always thought they were certainly the, uh, the Bush-Cheney administration was driven simply by the ambition of needing an excuse for the uh, overthrow of Saddam. And I think, I actually think it's once they realized there were no weapons, and especially chemical weapons, that it was okay to invade. I thought it was almost they needed the UN to go in and make sure that the, the American forces wouldn't be met with uh, chemical weapons or, and so on. There was also a conference in uh, Ottawa about 
seven or eight months before the invasion of leading national security experts from around the world, including leading military figures and others. And they had a resolution at the end of it, which actually said uh, that it doesn't matter whether Saddam has any weapons of mass destruction because it's clear they could only be used in a defensive capacity. There's no offensive possibility of it. So even even that wasn't even an issue that there were, may have been some doubt whether they're weapons or not. But I think the I think the point we're getting at with Rice here is that she buys into this vision of America as the global policeman, the intervener, and she has no seems to have very little compunction about using military force. Um, what does that mean in terms of Middle East politics? It's not a direct issue of intervention there, but what how, what does if her she ascends either to VP and if she doesn't get VP, I would think it's. High, highly possible she'll wind up as Secretary of State. What, what would it mean for Middle East politics? Well, I think One, we're talking uh, about the, the Middle East as a region, or you're referring specifically to Israel-Palestine? As a, well, um, well I, I guess in my head in mind, Israel-Palestine, but yeah, how about I, both? No, I thought uh, on, on Israel-Palestine, I think the issue is not that she would see the use of force as a, as a factor. She's, she's not an absolutist in that sense. It's that there's no challenge to the existing pro-Israel assumption that has guided U.S. foreign policy for so long. One of the things that's sort of interesting about Biden, Biden has not been one of those in power, whether in, uh, in the Congress, in the Senate, in the White House, or anywhere else among political figures, who have had to explain themselves, to, uh, uh, to respond to pressure that recognizes the the degree to which discourse on this issue has so massively changed over the last decade or more. You know, the, the opinion of young Democrats, profoundly different than the Washington consensus, if you will, on uncritical support for, for, for Israel, uncritical U.S. support for the Israeli military, uncritical and absolute protection of Israel in the United Nations, all those things that have been a given for so long they're not yet changing, but the discourse around them is changing dramatically, both at the public level and the media level. And it's in that context where you see a certain kind of defensiveness among uh, people close to Biden that are recognizing this. Black Democrats don't have the same uh, embrace of Israel that they once did. Young Democrats certainly don't. And Jewish Democrats, crucially, have pulled very far away from the kind of assumption of pro-Israeli politics that, that characterized the Jewish community for so long. So the rise of explicitly anti-Zionist organizations and anti-occupation organizations and others, ranging from J Street to, if not now, to uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, which of course has 20,000 uh, 20, paid members and, and several hundred thousand online supporters among Jews who's, who define their political work in the context of Palestinian rights. You do see that in some people that are around Biden, although he hasn't yet showed that change, but people like Susan Rice who have never had to run for office. She's never run a campaign. She's never run uh, to represent people. So she never had to answer for her politics publicly. So I think that becomes a very dangerous reality. I don't think she... Is, has ever had to work outside of the Washington bubble where people tend to still agree. 
that Netanyahu is the leader of a democratic country and that the Jewish community in the U.S. are all supportive of Israel and that criticizing Israel is political suicide. There's this set of, quote, facts that have not been true for a very long time. And but I'm she a, has I'm apparently a, come out. She has come out against the, uh, Netanyahu's annexation. recent annexation. Well, everybody has come out against annexation. And in fact, as we've even seen, Chuck Schumer, annexation is not any longer on the agenda right now because of the pandemic. That has nothing to do with the U.S. policy. It has everything to do with the fact that the the rationale for the for annexation, which doesn't really do Israel any good. Israel was doing fine with pro with with. Uh, uh, existing and unofficial annexation, what they wanted to do was turn it f- into legal annexation. The problem is that that was based on Netanyahu's need to pacify his farther right supporters. He's not worried about the supporters to his left. He's worried about the supporters to his right. And they were demanding annexation and he was prepared to do whatever he had to do to keep them happy because keeping them happy is necessary to keep him out of jail. What happened with the pandemic is they suddenly stopped worrying very much about annexation and started worrying about the pandemic. And as a result, he was able to pull back from annexation, take it off the agenda for now. It's not dead in the water, but it's not on any close-up agenda right now. So that's not what is something that anybody in Washington has to respond to. It's easy for them to say, oh, no, I don't think it's a good idea, because it's not on the table in Tel Aviv. Stephen, what is what is Susan's uh, Rice's record on Israel-Palestine? Uh, she's one of the biggest hawks in in uh, in the within the establishment. Even um, I know when she, uh, she was in the Obama administration, uh, Robert Wexler, a former congressman who then later headed a right-leaning pro-Israel advocacy group, uh, wrote in an op-ed in Politico that quote Israel has no greater champion in the current administration uh, than Susan Rice. Um, she she uh, vetoed a very modest UN Security Council resolution just reiterating the illegality of uh, Israeli colonization in the occupied uh, territories, and also reiterating the force of the convention, a landmark uh, world court decision. She just dismissed it as anti-Israel crap. <laughs> you know, she was one, cast one of only nine negative votes in 193-member UN General Assembly to upgrade Palestine's uh, status to a non-member state. I mean, her, her view as well. Israeli statehood and membership in the UN is a given. Palestinian statehood and UN recognition should only be on terms agreed to by Israel's uh, right-wing um, uh, government. Uh, she showed utter contempt for international law as uh, as a basis for um, a settlement, saying things like uh, Israel's unilateral annexation of Greater East Jerusalem, the the, the, the settlements and 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 more, you know, should be up to the two parties to decide. Uh, you know, ignoring the gross asymmetry in power, you know, saying saying the UN should not attempt to resolve the core issues that divide Israelis and Palestinians. You know, I mean, like saying the UN shouldn't have a role in um, an international conflict that raises issues in the UN Charter. I mean, seriously. <laughs> um, and, and she has de- defended uh, Israel's attacks on population centers, which have killed um, thousands of civilians over the years that have been uh, war crimes well documented by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the United Nations. And she's just said, oh, Israel has the right to defend itself. Uh, uh, and, you know, she, she, um, you know she, she's denounced um, uh, UN and, and, and investigations 
and, and, and reputable international jurist. Uh, she's really hard line. That's particularly disturbing because Biden also has a reputation of being one of the more uh, is being one of the more hard line people within the Obama administration on Israel Palestine. His record in the Senate was was very extreme. Uh, uh, you know, he, he's uh, both of them are much closer to groups like a- APAC than say J Street and the more moderate uh, pro uh, Israel groups. I actually have an article that came out this morning in Truthout, uh, which looks at the uh, Democratic platform and how they address Israel-Palestine, where they uh, readily announce uh, efforts of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and criticize the United Nations and you know for 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 its role, and says nothing of the occupation. Uh, and um, it, it, it is there again, as, as Phyllis pointed out, they're so out of touch with rank and file Democrats. I mean, in, in this article, I point out the, the polls show just how, how far, far off they are. So so basically what, what Biden needs to do, he needs to have a, a running mate that will um, tell to, to reassure the more progressive, major, the more progressive majority in the party uh, that he that he's he's reaching out to them. Uh, that if he names somebody like Rice, it's a simple, it's, it's 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 a big middle finger to the uh, uh, to to the rank rank and file whose support he needs. I mean, I mean, the the, the uh, for for Biden to win, there's got to be a high turnout among millennials and and uh, and those you know uh, of the of the more left to libertarian kind of views that are concerned about uh, Biden's hawkish record on Israel, Palestine, Iraq, and elsewhere. And to get somebody who's in his mold like that is is going to be really alienating and okay i'm I'm going to jump in here with with a little bit of biden defense which uh, i uh, because i I, at least on the issue of iran uh, biden supported the uh, nuclear agreement and according to larry wilkerson uh, who pushed on the hill was lobbying on the hill in favor of the agreement biden actually fought very hard for that uh, for the agreement with iran and I remember in 2008, during the campaign, there was an interesting quote from Biden, where he one says, it's, it, you have to accept Iran as a regional power. You can't act as if it's not. And then he said, I thought something really interesting, which was, if you didn't want that, you shouldn't have invaded Iraq, mm-hmm. which seemed a, a rational position on Iran. And again, while I'm sure no fan of Susan Rice, uh, from what I understand, she she supported the agreement with Iran as well. So, Phyllis, is that some kind of redeeming uh, something about them? Well, I think that in terms of Biden, it is one of the most important things about what a Biden administration could be pressured to do. Uh, and I think that is very, very important. It was Obama's single biggest diplomatic victory was the Iran nuclear deal. And it was a hard won victory because Congress had a lot of opposition. A lot of pro-Israel forces, including many progressive pro-Israel forces in Congress, were very reluctant to come on board supporting the, uh, the Iran nuclear deal because the, the uh, Israeli position was dead set against it. They claimed they believed it to be a, an existential threat to Israel, which of course it never was. I mean, even if Iran at some point did get a nuclear weapon, which it never has, and U.S. intelligence agencies all agree it never even decided it wanted one. But even if it did, all it would mean would be a threat to Israel's nuclear monopoly in the, in the region. It would not be an existential threat to the people or the country of Israel. But I think what is true is that there was a recognition of the importance of that, uh, that agreement. And the Obama administration, to a person, fought very hard for it. That may, meant that Biden was fighting for it. 
I think he fought harder than Susan Rice did, I would say, but she represented it. She was in that administration. That was their position. So I think the question of returning to the nuclear deal and perhaps broadening the the uh, kind of diplomacy that was underway with Iran is something that Biden might be open to. It does not match Susan Rice's own perspectives on all this stuff. She followed the lead of the, the president who she worked for. You know, she was in a position where she serves at the pleasure of the president. So if she didn't support his initiative on, on something that important, whatever she said in private, and I have no idea if she opposed it in, pri- in private before it became the official position of the Obama administration, uh, but whether she did or not, she was a, a representative of that administration. So I agree with you, Paul, that is a very important component that we should keep in mind. It also goes to, to the enormous differences between Biden and uh, the Trump administration on issues around climate, issues around immigration and all of those ways. Uh, It is probably in the question of international politics, of foreign policy, where there is the biggest gap between a potential Biden administration and the progressive wing of the party, which is increasingly, not just increasing in size and influence, but increasingly uh, strong in, in claiming the legitimacy of its positions. It's in that context that bringing in someone like Susan Rice, who pulls him further to the right, rather than someone who could act as a balance towards his own right-wing tendencies, becomes so dangerous. And if you put aside any substantive concerns and just look at the what, what it means for the campaigning, what it means for votes, something Stephen said earlier, I think is absolutely right, that If you're trying to get progressive voters, you're trying to get millennial voters, Susan Rice is not someone who they're going to see as representing their interests, their perspectives. And that's a serious threat to Biden even being elected. Stephen, uh, there's probably no foreign policy position, no relationship more important than between the United States and China. Uh, Biden has recently upped his aggressive rhetoric towards China. Uh, one hopes it's a tactical thing just to kind of outflank uh, uh, Trump on China, but it's a horrible outflanking thing to do to add to the Cold War uh, mentality. What is Susan Rice's uh, history and record on China? Actually, I don't know. That's that's not an area that I have um, uh, uh, seen much uh, in in her record about. I, I, I think she's a, she recognizes that China is a, is a major power that needs to be uh, uh, dealt with. But uh, and, and given you know, her, her, her hawkish tendencies on a, a number of things, I, 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 I'm concerned. But I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not aware of anything specific. Are you, Phyllis? She's very much an Africa and Middle East expert. She hasn't emerged as a, uh, as an expert on China. I think what we're seeing that's quite disturbing is a tendency within the Democratic Party, and unfortunately it includes some on the progressive side as well as the the Democratic Party mainstream and even the right-wing Democrats, are trying to outrun Trump to the right uh, on the question of China and the threat of a new Cold War that could get very hot, almost by something that would be called an accident because neither side would necessarily want to launch a, a shooting war, But because tensions are so high, communication is so lacking 
that the danger of what could happen, for example, in the South China Sea, it's very similar to the situation between the United States and Iran in the Persian Gulf, where you have the naval uh, armadas of both sides very close to each other, very crowded waters. You can imagine in the South China Sea, like in the uh, uh, in the area around the Strait of Hormuz, for instance, you could imagine a scenario late at night, uh, a, young, a young sailor on board a ship sees a, uh, some kind of a light, some kind of a flash, and immediately thinks that she or he is under attack, fires back sort of instinctively. The, the U.S. and Russia in Syria, for instance, have a military-to-military -military communication system where something like that can be called out and, and brought down. The temperature can be reduced very quickly in direct calls. As far as we know, that doesn't exist between the U.S. and China in the South China Sea or between the U.S. and Iran. It means going through uh, intermediaries. It means time wasted. And by that time, there could be a shooting war could break out. It's not impossible. It's not inevitable by any means. And I don't believe that either side actually sees that as a political advantage. But I do think it's a very dangerous reality that the uh, the the. Uh, assumptions throughout a bipartisan consensus in Washington is that China needs to be viewed in a Cold War uh, competitor and enemy kind of context rather than that as a, it's another uh, competing economic power in the world. We're no longer the, the sole economic power and we have to learn you know, new ways of, of dealing with this rising power. This point that you made that even some progressives in the Democratic Party are talking that way, uh, even worse, some progressives in the Democratic Party joined in all the anti-Russia hysteria. And uh, we're, we're, again, I think to a large extent, just for really partisan political reasons, it was just a way to go at, at Trump, uh, but but invoking all the demons of the Cold War to do it. What did you, is, do you know anything about Susan Rice and her attitude towards Russia, Stephen? Uh I, I think uh, you know she does uh, take a, a she was uh, you know generally supported the eastern expansion of NATO which uh um was was part of what has provoked uh, the rather uh, reactionary uh, nationalism that we've seen emerged under uh, Putin's uh, uh leadership uh you know they share this kind of triumphalist kind of view that oh we won the cold war you lost and so we'll treat you uh like a uh uh, a second-rate power, and and you know, I I, I mean, I, I as much as anybody are, are horrified at uh, you know some of the actions by both the uh, Russian and uh, Chinese governments. But you know, I mean, we given some of the uh, right-wing uh, regimes that we support around the world, you know, it's it's not the human rights concerns that uh, that are motivating uh, this. It's not, and, and no, nor is it concerns about international law. You know, given our our support for, um, you know, the Israeli occupation and the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara. Do we really care about Crimea <laughs> in light of that? I mean, it, it, it's, it's uh, in certain ways, it, it, they are, um, uh, and again, not to, not to minimize, you know, legitimate concerns uh, about these, uh, these uh, autocratic regimes, but this, uh, the, 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 it feeds in this kind of self-righteousness that, um, you know, these are threats and we are the, uh, the, we are the, the moral and, and legal defender of the world order. And, and we have to take these kinds of confrontational uh, positions uh, to, 
uh, to challenge them. And and uh, and and Susan Rice is is very much a part of that that, that paradigm, unfortunately. And and just to add add to, to what Phyllis was saying, what I was saying earlier about how she really doesn't add that much to ticket. I mean. You, you want a black woman as your running mate, well, get someone who comes out of the black community, you know, somebody like Karen Bass or, 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 or whomever. I mean, uh, Susan Rice doesn't have particular close ties to the black community. She, she's a resident of Maine, the whitest state in the country. I mean, this is this is not really someone who could could add much in terms of the um, uh, of getting the um, enthusiasm uh, to, uh, um, uh, to to build a, a winning ticket in November. Yeah, I think uh, people all over the country that supported Sanders and are trying to talk themselves into the necessity of voting for Biden to defeat Trump, it's going to take a wind out of a lot of sales if the, if Susan Rice uh, gets the nod. How 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 much impact do you think it will have, Phyllis? I'm not an analyst of uh, of voting potentials. Uh, and I work for a nonprofit, so we don't take positions on on candidates directly, except in terms of analysis of what they what they're pushing for. But I think that to the degree that the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has emerged with such energy and such excitement, particularly exciting young voters, particularly where we see the crossover, the the climate movement, for example, that's disproportionately young new voters that are so excited about the developments in, in the, the rise of the Green New Deal, all of that, uh, the, the foreign policy aspects are tied to that. And I think that to the degree that Biden is trying to win over support from the, uh, the reluctant the reluctant voters who were excited about Bernie Sanders, maybe were excited about Elizabeth Warren, but are not so excited about Joe Biden, uh, bringing in someone like Susan Rice, who is so close to the Biden positions that are disliked by that wing of the party, is certainly not going to help him bring in that wing of the party that's al- already that resistant. Yeah, I think it's uh, if she gets the nod, it's his first major concession, both both to the financial sector and the military-industrial complex sector, because it's the financial sector that owns the military-industrial complex sector primarily. If you looked at who owns Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Boeing, it's all the, the uh, majority shareholders are all big financial institutions led by BlackRock and Vanguard and those kinds of people. And so I think a nod to her is, is going to be a pretty bad indication of where he's going to go on these kinds of issues. At any rate, thank you both for joining me on the Analysis News Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This is great. And thank you for listening. And please join us again. Mm